Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. For the Horde! This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken, the Forsaken. Welcome to the World of Warcraft Survival Guide for Visions of Nazoth, the latest content update for Battle for Azeroth. In this video, we'll take a look at the new features and changes coming with it. With the defeat of Queen Ashara, the old god Nazoth was freed from his prison. Now, he's unleashing his shadowy forces upon Azeroth. We'll need some awesome gear and new allied races to battle against the Void. Two new allied races will be available to play in Visions of Nazoth, the resourceful Volpera and industrious Mechanomes. As with other allied races, unlocking each race will reward you with a unique mount, and leveling a new Volpera or Mechanome from 20 to 110 will earn you a special Heritage Armor transmogrification set. Horde players can unlock Volpera by completing the Voldoon level-up storyline and reaching Exalted with the Voldoonai. Alliance players who are exalted with the Rustbolt Resistance and have completed the Mechagon storyline can embark on a questline to create a Mechanome of their very own. Level 120 players will see the overwhelming might of the Old Gods firsthand in new assaults on Titan facilities in either Old Doom or the Vale of Eternal Blossoms. Players must drive back Nizoth's minions by completing objectives in the area, including defeating enemies and rares, looting treasures, and participating in events. After making some progress, players will go up against the lieutenant leading the enemy's forces. Once victorious, you'll be rewarded with a powerful piece of equipment and a vessel of horrific visions, a key that gives you access to a new feature, horrific visions. Horrific visions are instance content for one to five players that subject you to Nizoth's twisted future for Orgrimmar and Stormwind. While exploring a horrific vision, your sanity will be under constant attack, increasing difficulty and forcing you to leave before you're consumed by insanity. Each time you undergo a horrific vision, you'll leave with more knowledge and fragments of Nazoth's corruption. Take these to Mother and Magni in Silithus to strengthen your defenses and earn new tools, which will allow you to delve deeper into Nazoth's horrific visions and earn greater rewards. Players seeking the next echelon of rewards and challenges can adventure into bonus areas of horrific visions to discover faceless masks. Wearing these masks raises the difficulty level of horrific visions and unlocks access to stronger items. To combat Nizoth's corruption, Rathion will return and work with players to craft a legendary cloak. This upgradable legendary starts at rank one at item level 470 with subsequent ranks increasing its power and adding other unique effects. It will enable players to venture deeper and deeper into horrific visions, earning greater rewards and unlocking more of the mysteries behind Nazoth's power. This cloak may also come in handy when you face off against Nazoth himself in the upcoming raid. Also in Visions of Nazoth, you'll find gear with a new stat called Corruption. Cursed by Nazoth, Corrupted items offer truly exceptional power for a price. 
as you don more corrupted gear, the corruption will begin to affect you in increasingly deadly ways. At low corruption levels, you may be slowed periodically when taking damage, while at higher corruption levels, evil forces from the void may come for you at any moment. Deciding how much corruption to take on is a delicate balancing act, which can be mitigated with your new legendary cloak and new essences. By donning these powerful items, you can counter negative side effects and reap the benefits of Nazoth's might without all of the downsides. Players can now unlock a new minor slot on their Heart of Azeroth at level 75, along with periodic increases to stamina up to level 80. The Heart of Azeroth can be leveled beyond 80, granting it increased item level and slight stat increases. New essences can be found in Assaults on Uldum and Veil of Eternal Blossoms, delving into Horrific Visions, and the Nihilotha Raid. Visions of Nazoth also brings with it a visual update and redesign for the Deepwind Gorge Battleground. Inspired by Arathi Basin, the new Deepwind Gorge has five capture points for teams to battle over. Of course, there's so much more coming with Visions of Nazoth, including new storyline quests to confront Nazoth and his armies and navigate a peace treaty between the Alliance and Horde. You'll also be able to earn Goblin and Worgen Heritage Armor, and players who have pre-purchased Shadowlands will be able to create Death Knights of unlocked allied races and Pandaren. We'll also see a rebuilt auction house, an arcade addition to the Darkmoon Fair, and new profession recipes. And that's just the beginning. We'll meet you here again to discuss the start of Season 4 of PvP and Mythic Keystone Dungeons, the Darkshore Heroic Warfront, and of course, the new 12-boss raid, Nihilotha The Waking City. Keep an eye on worldofwarcraft.com for more details on upcoming content. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you on the front lines. Hello and welcome to episode 109, and Happy New Year, everyone. I'm so sorry that I didn't get to release this episode earlier, but again, real life is more important than anything else, and... What can I say when family calls you have to to follow? So I had to take a couple of weeks or three actually almost and take care of family business. I hope that that's not going to be too recurring a theme, but you never know. And uh, yeah, as I said, real life is more important than anything else in the internet. And I'll leave it at that. I'm glad that you chose to listen to this episode today, so welcome. We are at the eve of the patch 8.3 release, in the US anyway, so I thought I would focus on that happening. There are a couple of segments that are kind of neutral, but most of the segments revolve around stuff that's changing, being added, or involved story that is going to play out or be referenced to in 8.3. So I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. We have segments by Blizzard, Noble 87, Hazel, Charm, Hero Maradex, Silver Latomi, Carvo, and Mad Season Show. I have been as I said, I have been away from everything WoW for the last almost three weeks, so I really didn't have much time to focus on anything. 
What I'm looking forward to the most, though, if I can just state that, oddly enough, is the no auction house. And I hope that it's going to turn out okay. I've read a couple of critical posts, tweets, whatnot, and listened to some critical voices that said that some aspects of the new system aren't what they wanted, that some, some other way to do it would be better. I can't judge because I really don't know the intricacies of what it's going to be and the consequences of it. But I'm willing to give it a try, definitely. I like the fact that you can set favorites. I like the fact that you can search for appearances. You can search for higher level stuff, as in upgrades. You can set favorites, as I said. You can do so many new things with the auction house. And I'm really looking forward to checking all that out. Before I left, I went onto the PTR and checked it out. But it wasn't a system that was well-fed, so to speak. If you want something like an auction house, you want auctions there at reasonable prices. And I saw that that wasn't the case. So in my opinion, the mechanics were testable, but the way that it's going to happen now, the way that the new auction house is going to work under realistic conditions is something that they couldn't test because there weren't nearly enough people on the PTR that would feed the auction house for it to be significantly tested in realistic conditions. But anyway, that's just me and that's the aspect of it that I am curious about. How well is it going to work under these realistic conditions? What will it mean for for auction data, for the auction house add-on and for other add-ons, TSM? How will it affect that? And all those things, I'm curious about what that's going to mean. Okay, I've talked long enough. Let's get this show on the road. First segment today, or the second, since you already heard, the Blizzard Survivor Guide is going to be... Noble 87 with his story of Battle for Azeroth recap into 8.3. So this is going to be for people that haven't really paid much attention. A recap of the story of Battle for Azeroth, something that you might have missed or not remembered. So I thought, why not give you guys a little what happened so far? And that's it. Here is... Noble 87. Hello everyone, and a happy 2020. Hope you all had a fantastic new year. So 2020 is here, and while it should have actually released last year, we got Warcraft Reforge that should be going live this month, I believe. All good stuff to look forward to. 
But of course, this little update is not why you're here. You're here because in this month, January, we're gonna see the launch of patch 8.3. And imagine that more people out there, you took a little break and enjoyed the holidays. What better time than to refresh our memories and talk about the story of Battle for Azeroth so far, going into patch 8.3. It all began with the end of Legion, in which we defeated Sargeras and the Burning Legion. But the Dark Titan, he was a sore loser, and he stabbed Azeroth anyways. Magni Bronzebeard, the speaker. He rallies us to focus on healing the world. If not, we might not have an Azeroth left to fight over. Gifted with the heart of Azeroth, we gather this new powerful substance, Azerite they call it, from all kinds of different locations. Island expeditions, warfronts, mythic plus, raiding, world quests. All around us, Azerite is gathered to heal the world and empower ourselves with Azerite armor. But of course, this powerful new resource, it can be used for more than just healing. We now know that Warchief Sylvanas Windrunner, she came in touch with a being of the Shadowlands, one that goes by the name of the Jailer. The details are unclear, will be revealed more in the next expansion. But the Banshee Queen, we know for certain, she wants to conquer death, she wants to stay out of hell, or perhaps even rule it. Again, more details are going to be revealed in the next expansion. War is required in this world of Warcraft, but Sylvanas, she was smart enough to realize that the Hordes, they would not just blindly follow her. They needed a symbol, a person of honor that they trusted to lead this charge, and she managed to convince Saurfang to stand at her side. Sure enough, they might be able to get a peace going with King Anduin Rin leading the alliance. Seeds of that peace, they were attempted to be planted in the novel Before the Storm, in which we read about the Forsaken and humans reuniting, but that meeting ended in disaster. The Forsaken presence, they were having such a good time that they did not want the day to end. They asked Kalia Menefil, sister to Arthas Menefil, to stand with them, and so she did. Some of them tried to abandon the Horde, abandon the Banshee Queen, run to the Alliance. Others, they would not dream of forsakening Sylvanas. All of them, deserters and those that tried to go back, they were shot down by the Warchief. Even Kalia lay dead on the field, but no war was properly started this day. Not quite yet. Sylvanas was smart enough to only kill her own people and Kalia, who did not belong to the Alliance. But this attempt at peace, it ended in disaster, but not the end of Kalia's story. She was brought back to the Priest Order Hall and resurrected in the light, with the aid of Enduin, Alonsus, and Naru. Light's blessing upon you. So yeah, with Enduin, the Horde, and the Alliance, they might be able to get some peace going. But how long would that peace actually last? Time, it breaks all bonds, and history shows us that we're really good at holding on to old hatreds, fighting one another. So Saurfang, he agrees with the Warchief that it would be better to take care of the enemy once and for all. Plans are made to attack the Night Elves, occupy Teldrassil, and strike out at their leaders. By holding the tree and its citizens hostage, the Alliance will be unable to retaliate. Not to mention, how would Gilneas react if Anduin decides to go free Teldrassil before Gilneas? There would be infighting, enough for them to pick them off one by one, shatter their precious alliance, and win the war. The best laid plans can still go wrong. Despite having Malfurion exactly where she wanted him, Sylvanas decided to hand over the kill to Saurfang, who just couldn't take the blow. The strike he had done, it had been dishonorable. Empty-handed, he returned to his warchief, who then decided to inflict the wounds that the death of the leader was supposed to cause in a completely different way. Burn it! The world tree, and though still stuck inside, it goes up in flames. Even Nefanos was surprised at the order given, and the Night Elves, they feel like their goddess Alune has abandoned them. 
Not exactly the way they envisioned to win the war. The Alliance, they were now free to retaliate, with burning vengeance in the hearts. Soon enough, Lordaeron falls under siege, and the Warchief shows them that she's not afraid of using whatever it's going to take to secure her victory. Unleashing their plague on friend and foe, resurrected the fallen in on death, blowing up the city if they have to, anything to take out the Alliance. And Saurfang, he can't believe it. This dishonorable way, this disregard for the lives of their people, it's not what he signed up for. The burning of Teldrassil had already pushed him to abandon the horde and fight on his own before the siege ever began, and these tactics, it pushed him even further, staying behind to find his honorable death in battle at the hands of the Alliance. That would not be his fate though. Enduin has heard many tales about the honorful Saurfang and decides to imprison him instead. With the addition of Jaina Proudmoore, it showed up on the battlefield in a flying ship. She returned to the Alliance, and now they confront the Warchief together, a meeting ending up in explosions, which kicks off the battle for Azeroth. War. It means that we can use as many fighters as we can. The Alliance, they head on over to Calteris, homeland of Miss Jaina Proudmore. But the relations between them and the Alliance, they've been kinda rocky, to say the least, ever since the Daughter of the Sea stepped to the side and had her father killed. Some are smart enough to see that Calteris, they need the Alliance as well. Especially since they're dealing with quite a bit of darkness brewing beneath the surface. In Tidegard, we expose Priscilla Ashvane for actively working against House Proudmoore. In Drasvar, we expose the ancient evil of the Drust that has taken over their house and ultimately defeat Gorak Tool in his domain. In Stormsong Valley, we expose the corruption that seeped into the organization of Tide Sages, their connection to the sea, which exposed them to Azara and Nazoth. With helping them out, Catherine Proudmoore eventually welcomes her daughter and the Alliance back, which adds the force of Kul'Tiris to their ranks. In turn, the Horde meets up with Princess Talanji, daughter of King Rastakan of the Zandalari. With her travels Prophet Zul, which you might remember from being behind the troll events that we saw during Mr. Pandaria. They have been captured though by the Alliance while traveling to Orgrimmar, so a rescue mission is in order, one that puts Stormwinds to the torch and has them sail to Zandalar. There they meet up with the king and help him out with their troubles as well. The lands of Nasmir face a corruption seeping out of Uldir. An artificially created old god going by the name of Cahoon, it's causing quite a bit of trouble for the lands, with Zul and his forces actively working on releasing it. That's right, like Priscilla, Zul isn't loyal. He's actually working against Rastakan. They want to break the seals, which keep Gahun locked away, aided by a powerful force long forgotten, found in the sands of Voldoon. Ultimately, they succeeded in their mission. It helps when you're a prophet and you can see what's gonna happen next. King Rastakan, he sees no other option but to ally himself to Bonsamdi, and not just himself, but his entire bloodline, they will now serve the Loa in life and in death. A heavy price to pay but one that does grant them the power to save their city. Zul struck down only to return at Uldir, where heroes ventured to take care of Cahoon. All the same, the Zandalari are allied to the Horde and eventually even became playable. We saw a few allied races added in Legion. While we battled for Azeroth, we got the addition of Magar Orcs and Zandalari Trolls for the Horde, while the Alliance, they got the Dark Island Dwarves and the Kaltirans. Two more are coming in the next patch. I'm all over the one added to the Hordes. But for now, the Alliance and the Hordes, they pursue their own war campaigns to claim their ultimate victory. Outposts in enemy territory are established. Whereas the Horde, they go on a mission of securing a powerful artifact, which is called the Abyssal Scepter. Along the way, they also resurrect a few of the Fallen to add them to the ranks or to gain information. 
Priscilla Ashwain is broken out of prison and she can provide valuable information to the war chief. They even stumble upon the body of Derek Proudmoore, who is the brother to Jaina and died quite a while ago at the hands of orcs and dragons. A corpse to be brought back to life and serve the Banshee Queen. Meanwhile, the Alliance, they deal with the Sand Lane. They uncover that the Horde has stolen the scepter and they steal it back. They make ready to siege the capital of the Zandalari by placing bombs and gathering forces until the time was right to attack the city. Perhaps they'd be able to convince the king of the Zandalari to surrender. But of course Rastakan, he was not about to give up to these invaders of his home. Calling upon Monsamdi to aid him, the king took on the Alliance head-on. But ultimately, he lost his life for the trouble. <laughs> no matter to Bonsamdi though, the king's bloodline would continue to serve. He's passed on to Princess Talanji, who's not exactly happy about the death of her father. The Alliance retreats, in which Galvin Mechatork, he holds the line. He takes on the Horde and nearly loses his life. Now he's trapped in his escape pod, and none have been able to save him. Now some, they might call this a victory for the Alliance, but exactly at what cost? So many lives were lost. King Enduin fears that the death of Rastakan is going to ignite a fire in the hearts of the Zandalari. Not to mention that Sylvanas hasn't played all her cards quite yet. By resurrecting Derek, she plans to use him as a weapon, take over his mind, send him back to the Alliance to hurt them from within. But not just Sourfang thinks that Sylvanas has taken things too far. More and more voices amongst the Horde are rising up amongst them Bane Bloodhoof. He decides to take action and sends Derek back to his sister. This betrayal is uncovered, a great show for all to see what exactly the Warchief does with betrayers. Bloodhoof is placed in chains, awaiting his punishment. Meanwhile, over in Darkshore, we have the Night Elves that have decided to take some sweet vengeance, with Toronto Whisperwind invoking an ancient, dangerous ritual, demanding a loon to grant her the power she needs. The Night Warrior walks the lands of Azeroth again, while the moon has turned dark. Nefanus and the Horde, they have no idea what they're in for. The leaders of the Night Elves, they're ready to take back their lands. And while it's not directly shown in-game, they have confirmed during the last BlizzCon that both the Warfront at Darkshore and the one in Stromgard, they're both won by the Alliance. However, Toronto's first for vengeance is not sated. Sylvanas still leads the Horde, she still walks the lands. She will not be satisfied until the Warchief has been made to pay or more and more, they're opening their eyes on the real threat amongst them. We see this go down in Nashatar, capital of the Naga. The Horde members, they brought the Warchief an artifact called the Blade of the Black Empire, and through it, there's a connection established between Sylvanas, Nazoth, and Azara. Long ago, the Queen of the Naga was a night elf that tried to bring the Legion into the world, but her plans did not succeed. Instead, she and those that were with her, they nearly drowned in the dark waters of Azeroth. Was it not for the old Katnazov that offered her a deal? She would serve him, not as a slave, but as a queen. Bring back that glorious black empire, and he would save her life. Turn her and those that accepted the bargain as well, they were turned into the Naka. For over 10,000 years, they've been scheming and plotting, building up their empire and forces, all with an eye on releasing Nazov and rule the world. Or at least, that's what Azara would like us all to believe. All the same, one of the final pieces of the puzzle to break the chains of the old god, that would be our very own heart of Azeroth, brimming with Azerite and power. As the Alliance chased the Horde at high seas, just as Sylvanas had planned, Azara, she splits the waters and drags all of their forces into her kingdom. Only Nefanos seemed to really be aware of what his beloved Banshee Queen was planning. The rest of the Horde, not so much, and while they fight against Azara and the minions, 
they also open up to the idea of uniting with the Alliance once again to take care of the war chief. Ultimately, Azara did succeed in getting us exactly where she wanted us to be. She loses her life in the battle, but our power is turned against us and Azov is set free. He then brings her back to life. Apparently, he isn't quite done with her yet. And for the first time since the Day of the Titans, an old god is on the loose to do what it desires. Oh yeah, and of course, let's not forget our trip to Mechagon, where we joined the Rustbolt Resistance in taking down their tyrannical leader. Over the ages, these gnomes, they've upgraded their bodies, which was always a personal choice. But now the king, he wants to enforce it upon all, something that his son is not down with. After gathering many, many of the scraps around the island and powerful upgrades, even witness a future in which we failed, we venture into Mechagon and dethrone the king, securing a future for the Mechagnomes as well as for ourselves. Bit of a detour for the overall story, but it will be continued in patch 8.3. Of course Nazoth, he is going to show us what he's got. They didn't call it the visions of Nazoth without a reason, the effects of an old god still being out there. That's all coming to us in January. For the story right now, we still had Sylvanas to deal with. As I mentioned earlier, Anduin decided not to take Saurfang's life, knowing the honor of the orc and knowing that on the battlefield, Saurfang could have easily struck him down, but he didn't. This is no longer his horde. Saurfang had hoped that Anduin and the Alliance, that they would be able to take care of Sylvanas, but they can't do it alone. Anduin decides to set him free and place him on a journey to do something, to help out, to fight against the Warchief. Orcs like him, orcs like former Warchief Thrall. We don't get to hide. After recruiting Thrall back from Outland and saving Bane out of Orgrimmar together with the Alliance, they make ready for another siege of Orgrimmar. Both sides, they prepare their troops, their defenses, but ultimately there would be no siege. Simply a Makura. A one-on-one duel between Saurfang and Sylvanas. A battle that he knew he could not win. And while it's true, he was unable to overpower Sylvanas. And we now know that it has to do with her deal with the Jailer. He was able to expose her to the rest of the Hordes. The Horde is nothing! As the War Chief is blasting off again, leaving behind the Horde that she no longer needs. We gather to say goodbye to Saurfang, who laid down his life for his beloved hordes. The old soldier has finally found his honorable death. The horde is going to need some new leadership, but the tensions between the factions, they're no longer at peak. Of course, there will always be voices of discontent. Tyrande and Greymane, for example, they're not satisfied with the outcome at all. I can't imagine that Princess Talanji, for example, that she will forget about the death of her father. In the streets of Orgrimmar, Sylvanas loyalists, they whisper to each other to always be there for the Dark Lady. While others, especially amongst the Forsaken, they truly feel forsaken. They're in need of new leadership as well, as we take the battle into the next patch, the Visions of Nazoth. The old god awaits, while the storyline with Sylvanas, that is saved for the next expansion. I have covered that part of the story, like Folds in Spear and whatnot, I have covered that in greater detail. So if you want to know more about the afterlife, about the Shadowlands, the information from BlizzCon and whatnot, I'll link a video on screen in the description down below. Now for next week, I'm thinking about covering the story of the Valpera and the Mechanomes, seeing how they're going to be our next allied race. After that, of course, the events of 8.3 included the new raid. Beyond that, who knows what the future is going to bring. I really, really want to cover Ronin. More people should be aware of his raptor army. And I think it's about high time that we cover Thrall as well. 
We'll see. There's going to be plenty of time between 8.3 and the Shadowlands beta. But for now, thank you very much for watching, everyone. First voiceover of 2020 done. I hope it sounds alright. As always, you could subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time, see ya! Hi, I'm Hazel, and today we're taking a look at the various cool things coming to WoW in patch 8.3. Patch rollout starts this Tuesday, January 14th, so the wait is almost over. First up, and top of my list, 8.3 is adding a new Island Expedition doubloon vendor. They hang out right by the original ones, and they'll sell you essentially island loot boxes in exchange for doubloons. Each box is tied to specific mob families of loot, and they contain the transmog, toys, pets, and mounts associated with those families. For example, if you want the Squawks Parrot mount, you'll want to put your doubloons into the rotting mire salvage due to its connection with pirates. What exactly you find in your box is of course random, but the reported mount drop rates so far have been pretty good. If there's one island expedition mount that's just been taunting you all expansion, things are about to look up for you. Next up, 8.3 is adding heritage armor for goblins and worgens. To unlock it, you'll need a level 120 of that race that is exalted with that faction. For example, a 120 worgen exalted with Gilneas. At that point, you can do the new heritage armor questline and unlock the set. If you don't have the rep yet, pick up your Gilneas or Buildwater Tabard and burn through some old dungeon runs to catch up. I hear the Mechanar is highly recommended. A new patch means better gear, and that's also going to be true for catch-up gear. Doing the new assaults will get you Black Empire pieces, which are bind on account and item level 415. Send them to your alts and watch their item level soar. Maybe it'll make you feel better when you're grinding out Azerite essences on them from scratch. If you've jumped on the hype train and pre-ordered Shadowlands, 8.3 is going to have an early gift for you, Allied Wraith Death Knights. Bolvar got lonely, so he's making friends. Volpera Death Knights, Void Elf Death Knights, Zandalari Troll Death Knights, the world is your oyster. Of course, every good patch has a raid, and this one's a doozy. Nyalotha has 12 bosses, spectacular views, and eyeballs for days, presumably for taking in those views. Normal and Heroic will open a week after patch launch on the 21st, with Mythic and LFR rolling out the week after that. I am doing raid guides again, so stay tuned. Of course, there'll be a fresh season of Mythic Plus as well with the brand new Awakened affix. No more emissaries. Instead, alternate reality mini-bosses that let you skip trash. There's a bit more to it than that, but they should shake up the preferred routes and keep Mythic Plus fresh for another season. Note that when the patch drops, your Titan Residuum is being reset with the new season. You will log in to zero Residuum in your Currency tab and then some Consolation Gold in the mail. If there's anything at all that you want to buy before the patch, do it before the patch. Also, there will be a PvP season with fresh vicious mounts, glad titles, all that good stuff. Next, one of the major features of 8.3 is Zone Assaults. Nizoth's mad, and he's mad at Oldham and the Vale of Eternal Blossoms in particular. You see an assault up on your map, head out there and do any number of defendy things to fill a progress bar. You'll get a cache with a piece of 445 gear and a healthy dose of currencies. You'll need those. Arguably, the central feature of the patch and the reason that you'll want all that currency is for horrific visions. You will need coalesced visions to get tickets to do them, you'll get corrupted mementos from doing them, and then use the mementos to train research and be better at horrific visions. You'll get new essences from these as well as upgrading your legendary cloak, so it's not a system to skip. They'll scale between 1 and 5 players, so you can do them alone or with your friends. Those entry tickets are limited and you will be really working for them though, so choose your company wisely. Also, don't start one right before an electrical storm or you go into labor or something. 
The basic gist is you go in and when you either die, run out of sanity, or kill the main boss, you're finished. Sanity will drain over time and getting hit by mechanics will also chunk it. Depending on what you accomplished while inside and whether you activated any hard modes, you'll get more corrupted mementos as well as cosmetics, achievements, that sort of thing. You spend those mementos on Titan research, which makes you better inside of Horrific Visions. To make things more complicated, there's also mini versions of Horrific Visions that you'll find in open world assault zones. Those don't use your research, they don't cost anything to do, but they are once per day and they do include the sanity mechanic. You don't have to remember any of that, so don't stress too much. The intro quest chain of the patch will walk you step by step through assaults, horrific visions, and the rest of it as you unlock your cloak and get your feet under you. Next cool thing, no more titan forging. New sources of gear will not titan forge. They will be an item level and that's the item level that they'll be. Instead, new gear can be corrupted. Corrupted pieces have an extra beneficial effect, but also increase your character's corruption total. At corruption breakpoints, new negative effects will happen such as random slows, void pools, that sort of thing. Your legendary cloak that you've been working on with Horrific Visions will give you some corruption resist, allowing you to get more upsides with less downsides. Do more visions, upgrade your cloak, and you'll be able to resist more and wear more corrupted gear safely. The whole corruption system is only here for as long as BFA is, so if you're not feeling it, you can just grab a pint somewhere and wait for Shadowlands. Something cool that you can always count on from a new patch are the mounts. 8.3's got plenty of them, but most importantly, we're getting alpaca mounts. It's happening. There's three colors, including Molly here, who's being added to the drop table of the Voldoon world boss. There's also a host of new battle pets for the pet collectors among you. You'll notice a running theme this time is Void Scarred Everything. The Void got to the beetles, it got to the toads, it got to the cats. I also have to show you Cuddly, because you've had a long year and you deserve it. On the topic of pets, 8.3 has a new pet dungeon with Black Rock Depths. Word on the street is that it's a tough one, but if you make it through, you'll see the finale of the shadowy figure mystery. You'll also earn the shadowy disguise toy to turn you into one of them. WoW Pet Guides already has strategies listed along with rematch strings, so that's my plan. One of the biggest lasting changes coming in 8.3 is the auction house revamp. They finally did it. I have a full video on this that I will link, but the gist is that basic buying and selling are much, much cleaner. You can buy partial stacks or multiple stacks in one transaction, so no more pages of single stacks ruining your day. Just type in how many you want, and if you like the price, go for it. There's also a handy little uncollected filter that you can use to search for only pets, mounts, and appearances that you do not have learned yet. That could get expensive. A small but welcome thing coming in 8.3 is more difficulties for Operation Mechagon. The 8-boss mega dungeon is being split into two halves for the sake of heroic as well as mythic plus. If you've never done the dungeon and want to unlock mechanomes, this means that you'll be able to queue for heroic and do it that way. Next, 8.3 is not bringing account-wide essences, but what it is bringing is new essences. You'll get some from Horrific Visions, some from Magni's new questline, and at least one from the Nihilotha raid. They all grant corruption resist on top of their effects, so they should be pretty competitive. If you're coming back to the game and you're overwhelmed by farming all of the essences, you might be able to get away with mostly new ones. We're also getting new Azerite levels to earn, along with a third minor slot that you will unlock at level 75. 
Last, 8.3 is bringing two new playable races to the game with Mechanomes for Alliance and Volpera for the Horde. To get Mechanomes, you'll need to be exalted with the Rustable Resistance and complete the Mechagonian Threat quest achievement. Then you'll need a level 120 Alliance character to do the unlock questline. Unlocking the race gives you the racial mount for the whole faction, so even if you don't plan to play one, it's worth doing the quests. Both races have fun racials, cool heritage armor, and it'll be nice to have more tiny characters running around. If you've never played a short tune, you should try it. You feel as though you're running very quickly. And that's what we're getting in 8.3. If you feel overwhelmed, me too. Just follow the campaign quest line and we'll all figure it out. Happy Patch Week, stop by my stream sometime, and have a wonderful, wonderful day.
That was Charm with her song, I Hope You Play. And before that, we heard Hazel with 16 cool things coming in patch 8.3. So thank you very much, ladies. It's greatly appreciated. Next up, we have a segment by Hero Maritex. He is going to talk about, in his mind, the top 10 hardest to earn achievements in the world of Warcraft. Obviously, I listened to this segment before I put it on, and let me just say, there are quite a few that are absolutely crazy. I'm not going to say insane, but I said it, but yeah, that one is is just, I mean, one thing I want to say, kudos to those who did the original version of it, and kudos to all those who did the math to get the Bloodsill Buccaneers and the four goblin cities to exalt it or high up there or whatever you needed for it at the same time. Because that is just absolutely, I don't know, someone said to me, and I still can't fathom that that's possible, that there is a way to get it done, mathematical equation where you can play the game so that you have all the factions, all five factions uh, in the positive, and I just can't. It's just insane. But again, uh, yeah, that's just me not even wanting to burden my mind with a hypothetical, mathematical hypothetical as that. So yeah, we have a couple of new factions coming in 8.3 and that makes the 100 factions achievement not way easier but easier again so there are the ones the people that didn't play in vanilla or even the people that started after cataclysm launched when the two faction Rep factions were removed. I'm talking about the Zandalar tribe in Strangathorn, and I'm talking about the. I never could remember the name of them, but the Diamol High Elf faction. Those are two factions that are, if you don't have them at whatever level you have them, if you have them at Exalted, then so much better for you. But the people that started their character or even their account after Cataclysm, you won't have that. You will see that the two factions are a thing in Classic. If you played it or if you haven't, then if you want to dive into that aspect of the game, and discover and explore those two factions, you can do so in Classic. The 100 Exalted Reps achievement is another insane, time-consuming one that he is going to list. So here is Hiromara Dex with Top 10 Hardest to Earn Achievements in World of Warcraft. In this video, we'll be going over the 10 hardest to complete achievements, which can be completed currently. And at number 10, we have the holiday achievement, what a long strange trip it's been. 
Added in Wrath of the Lich King, this achievement was one of the only ways to get a Proto Drake mount, and one of the only ways to get the 310% flying speed mount, as back then there was no riding training for 310. Instead, you needed to obtain rare mounts that had 310 flying speed. This Violet Proto Drake was rather easy to get compared to other things on this list. However, this is the only achievement with a year-long time lock. This achievement requires completing a ton of other achievements, each being the meta achievement for a holiday. Requiring Lunar Festival, which starts in January in the last two weeks, requiring you to get 12 achievements to finish that meta. It also requires Love is in the Air, which begins in February and also lasts two weeks, requiring you to get another 12 achievements. Then in April for one week, we have Noble Garden, requiring eight achieves. Children's Week beginning in May for, again, one week, requiring six achievements. One of them famously difficult, as it requires capturing a flag with your orphan in Eye of the Storm, and having to compete against the enemy faction and your own allies to get the flag, while everyone is also trying to get the achievement, which makes things quite difficult. Then we have Midsummer Fire Festival starting in June for two weeks, which requires another six achievements. Brewfest in September for two weeks, requiring five achievements. Hollow's End in October for two weeks, 11 achievements. And at the end of the year, there's Wintervale running in December for three weeks, requiring 11 achievements. And with that, that ends your year of farming, starting at the first month, ending at the last. Meaning it requires, no matter how hard you try, an entire year to complete. Hopefully you didn't miss an achievement, or you have to wait another year to try again. With a total of 71 achievements required, limited to specific days year-round, this achievement had to be on this list, and the one to introduce such. It would be much higher on this list simply for the amount and the time required of an entire year. However, with each individual achievement being rather easy, and most of the work being simply waiting for the next holiday to begin, it only gets a low spot on this list. And at number 9, we have the biggest collectathon achievement, Horde of Hoof Beasts. This achievement requires collecting at least 400 different mounts, all usable by one character. Added in BFA, this achievement is currently the final achievement in the Stable Keeper line, starting with 10 mounts, then 25, 50, 100, and so on and so on, giving the Blue and Red Dragonhawk at 100 mounts, the Jade Pandaren Kite at 150, the Armored Dragonhawks at 200, the Fellfire Hawk at 250, the Heavenly Azure Cloud Serpent at 300, the Binding Frost Shard Infernal at 350, and then lastly, the Frenzied Fell Talon at 400. The reason this achievement is on this list is because of the time and dedication it requires to earn 400 mounts. Of course, there is far more than 400 mounts currently, but without years of constant grinding, mount collecting, and gold spend on vendors, this mount and its achievement will stay out of your grip, at least until more free mounts are added. So for now, this achievement is the 400, but in Shadowlands, we might get a new one that requires 450 mounts or something, then that new one will take this spot, as each new expansion adds a whole host of new mounts to get. And at number 8, we have two achievements, both tied for the spot as they fill the same role, but for different playstyles of the game, while both being very similar in their way of obtaining. Tons and tons of just doing content. And those are the 250,000 honorable kills and the 10,000 world quest completed achievements. 250,000 honorable kills is quite the feat, something that will take most players a decade or more to complete, as killing a total of 250,000 other players is something only some can even dream of. However, those who are truly dedicated to PvP or farm out specific styles of content may find this easier than others, 
while still taking a fairly long time. While the other, the 10,000 world quests completed, is difficult in nature because of just how new it is. Legion was the first expansion to add world quests, so to do 10,000 world quests in the current time, or even at all, is quite rough. There is also an achievement for 10,000 daily quests completed, but that is not on this list simply because of how much content there is that uses daily quests, all the way back to the Burning Crusade, meaning in a single day someone could easily kick out 100 to 200 daily quests. However, currently, there are only so many world quests up at a time, and only a newer, longer content. Both of these are earned by just playing the game, but will take many years of playing to do so. And at number 7, we have the Hero of the Horde or Alliance achievement. This achievement is one granted to those who end the PvP season in the top 0.5% of the rated battleground ladder for their faction. Now, this is quite the difficult feat, requiring dedication, skill, and luck. Although, because of its nature, it's not higher on this list, as depending on your season, your class, and your faction, this can be either easy or really hard to obtain all paired with PvP being hard to gauge in its difficulty in general. But it is really something few people have obtained over its many years, granting you a special title if you do so, as well as the Gladiator Mount of that season. But that is more of a minor bonus, as the Gladiator Mount is much easier to obtain. And at number 6, we have one I'm sure you all knew would be on this list, Insane in the Membrane, a feat of strength that has been in the game for many, many years. This requires you to get 6 reputations to Exalted, and 1 at Honored. Now, I could list off the entire process for this, but that would make this video already much longer than it is, so here's a quick summary instead. First, you must get up Ravenhold by killing about 4200 Syndicate members in Stromgard until you are capped at the end of Honored, to which point you need to hand in heavy jump boxes for rep for the rest of the way to Exalted. 1405 of them to be exact. At least if you're not a human, that is. Darkmoon Fair is self-explanatory. Just do stuff during the Darkmoon Fair to get the 10% rep buff. Blood Cell Buccaneer, you need to simply kill guards in Booty Bay to grant yourself Blood Cell rep, and lose your rep with the Goblin Factions. Get this to Honored and you're done with that part. After that, you go kill some South Sea Pirates to get Exalted for Everlook, Booty Bay, Ratchet, and Gadgetson. Then, you have the Feat of Strength, and the Insane title. It used to require you to be honored with the Blood Cell and exalted with all Goblin Factions, but this has since been changed, so now you just have requiring having had both of them at some point, making this a lot faster to grind. So with that, this has gone a few spots down this list from where it may have once been. As to get the Blood Cell rep, it used to require you to kill one specific NPC, which only gave you five reputation a kill as that was the only way to gain rep past Revered, and you had to get your rep to Exalted back then. So, it took 20 days of in-game playtime to get enough rep from that guy. Luckily, you don't have to do that anymore, though. And at number 5, we have the PvP achievement, Khan, and another like it. Khan is a Battleground meta achievement that grants the Khan title, and you obtain it in a similar way to what a Long Strange Trip has been, doing more meta achievements. Khan requires Master of the Battlegrounds for Gilneas, which in itself contains 13 achievements, Master of Isle of Conquest, 11 achievements, Master of the Twin Peaks, 12 achievements, Master of Silver Shard Mines, only 9 achievements, and lastly, Master of Temple of Katmagu, which requires 8 achievements, meaning a total of 53 achievements, which is less than what a long strange trip it's been, and not having the one year long requirement, it is higher on this list simply because it is PvP, 
and earning achievements in PvP is very difficult, simply because you never know how your enemies are going to play, and you may be moments from your achievement only for an enemy player to come in and mess it all up. This achievement is the 2.0 version of another one called the Battle Master, which required the master achievements for the first four BGs added to the game, and this one required a similar amount of achievements, totaling in 31 for that one, granting you the Battle Master achievement. Both of these being long and painful journeys of constant close calls, your enemy messing things up, or even your own teammates stealing objectives from you. Easily earning its top spot on this list. And at number 4, we have one of, if not the longest single grind in the game, Honor Level 500. I will simply start by saying, to get to Honor Level 500 requires 4,400,000 Honor, which is a pretty big number for you non-PVPers out there. This grind is something very, very few people have completed. Most of those that have it are likely people who exploited a few known bugs, like the Darkshore pre-patch honor trading to do so, as to earn this currently, the only way to do it is to play PvP every single hour of every single day for almost a year. This was added in BFA, but people could get somewhat of a head start by having done PvP and gotten prestigious ranks in Legion when the PvP leveling system was introduced. Honor levels are something that just happens passively by doing PvP, first giving some rewards every 5 levels, like pets, toys, titles, mounts, and then moving to every 10, then every 25, and then every 100, ending with the Pent-Ultimate Prestigious Bloodforger Courser, a unique mount with an insanely nice appearance, an insane achievement earned by less than 0.1% of the community. And now we are on to the final three, and first we will start with a simple one to explain, the 100 Exalted Reputations achievement. Now, I don't need to tell you, but getting 100 different reputations to Exalted is very difficult, especially right now, as currently there are only a couple more reputations than required for the achievement. So, earning this requires doing tons of grinding, dailies, gold spent, and overall just, you know, a huge time investment over the course of every single expansion, as Vanilla has 28 reps, TBC has 16 for the Alliance, 17 for Horde, Wrath has 10, Kata has 7, Mop has 14, Wad has 8, Legion has 10, and BFA has 8, leaving us with a grand total of 102 reputations if you add the guild reputation. 103 if you got Shindalar or Zandalar Tribe before they were removed. So currently, this achievement is only obtainable if you do every single rep to Exalted with a leeway of two reps. However, with time, as more reputations are added to the game, this will become easier and easier. However, Blizzard is sure to add more rep achievements to the game, and with this harder versions of this achievement, that will fit into the spot, as some reps like Ravenhold and or Gorilla are super annoying and time-consuming to farm. And at number two, we have Warlord of Draenor, giving you the Warlord of Draenor title. This achievement was added with Warlords of Draenor, and has a simple requirement of killing a few of every single enemy race, as well as winning a fight in the High Mall Coliseum. Now, to be serious, winning a fight in the High Mall Coliseum is pretty easy, so I'm not even going to talk about that. What makes this achievement hard, though, is the other requirement, completing the Nemesis quests. These quests are picked up at the Gladiator Sanctum, a building you need to make in your garrison, and once made, you could pick up a quest of your choosing. Now, this is important, you could only pick up one quest at a time, you could not pick up multiple, and each quest required you to kill 500 of that one race 
while you're on Draenor before you can hand it in and pick up another quest. Meaning for Horde, for example, you would need to kill 500 Draenei, then 500 Dwarves, then 500 Gnomes, 500 Humans, 500 Night Elves, 500 Pandaren, and then 500 Worgen. Each granting a title like Draenei Destroyer, the Dwarf Stalker, etc, etc. I don't know if I need to say it, but killing 500 of every single race is hard enough. But to have to do them one at a time means to even complete one part requires thousands to ten thousands of kills. Especially since some races like the Gnomes, Goblin, and Pandaren are so rare. And especially now with allied races, to find and kill this many is insane. Pair that with the fact that all of this needs to be done on Draenor. While Draenor added no new BGs, it did add an epic PvP arena, Ashran, which was then made into the epic BG that is basically the only place you can do it now. Pair that with a massive amount of people hating Ashran, meaning this grind alone can take months to years of grinding in Ashran based on your luck and time commitment. Especially since there's no good way to abuse this, as killing one of these races gives that person a 5 minute debuff, meaning you can't get credit from them again. So you can't even hunger down with a friend to kill them over and over, as that will take you 42 hours to do just one, meaning the full grind. If you did it this way, it would take you 294 hours. Completing this is something very few people have done and ever will do, and this will likely never become easier, and may become even harder with more races and allied races added to the pool, lowering the amount of each of the current races you'll be able to find in Ashran. And last but not least, number one, the most widespread achievement I've ever seen and well deserving of the spot, as this achievement requires Mythic Plus, Raiding, Battlegrounds, Reputations, War Mode, Mechagon, Raided PvP, Island Expeditions, Heart of Azeroth levels, and Najdar Questing. And I doubt some of you will even know that this feat of strength even exists, and it is the Phenomenal Cosmic Power. Now, we are about to list off everything you need to do in order to get this achievement, simply because it is number one, so this might take a while. This achievement is granted to you by collecting every single Azerite Essence for once back at Legendary Rank 4. Rank 4 Essences are very hard to obtain, as they come from the hardest and most rare content, as the ranks 1 to 3 actually give power. Blizzard made them a bit easier to obtain, while rank 4s only give a cosmetic upgrade, meaning all of the effects are much more appealing, so they have to make the rank 4 much more difficult, to the point where many people don't even have a single rank 4 yet. The first comes from neck levels, all four rings coming from loving your Azerite neck to specific thresholds, followed by a short quest line with a specific dragonflight, the legendary rank coming at level 70. Next is the Mythic Plus Essence, requiring you to do a Mythic 4, 7, and then run a few every week for a while. Depending on how high of a key you did, speeding up this process at max, reducing it to 2 weeks if you do a 15 plus each week. After doing that, you need to earn rank 4 by completing every Mythic Plus dungeon at level 15, in the given amount of time. Then spend 800 Titan Residuum to purchase it. There's also the Raiding Essence, which requires killing bosses in the Internal Palace raid every week for upwards of months, depending on what difficulty you do. Higher difficulties make it go by faster, as you get items to craft ranks 1, 2, and 3. After that, you need to kill Mythic Ajara, and with that, about 3 people will get the rank 4 Essence. Meaning, not only do you have to do Mythic Ajara, a boss less than 2% of the player base has killed currently, you also need to hope you win the drop for yourself. Next is the basic PvP essence, requiring you to do Battlegrounds, Epic Battlegrounds, PvP Islands, and Weekly Brawls to earn honor. This being best done on easy brawls and during weekly Battleground bonus honor events. 
because for ranks 2 and 3, you need 10,000 and 30,000 honor. But then to get rank 4, you need a total of 100,000 honor, which is 3 times the grind required for rank 3. The next two essences will be included together as they're basically the same. The two essences require reputations with the 8.2 reps and Nashatar Mechagon. Ranks 1 through 3 requiring Honored, Revere, and Exalted, and the Vendor Cost of Mana Pearls or Mechagon Crafting Materials depending on the rep. In the coming 8.3, this is going to be lowered by one rep level each, making it much easier to get rank 3s. However, the rank 4s for those two reputations essences come from the Paragon Caches. These caches are earned once you get to Exalted and get 10,000 rep on top of that. You can then turn in the quest to get yourself a cache, and inside you have a chance to get your legendary essence. Now, for the war mode essence, this essence requires you to do a fair few amount of war mode based objectives, from killing up to 50 players of Mechagon and Nashatar, getting supply chests, and competing in the battle for Nashatar, to spending 5 weeks doing both weekly called arm quests. Those simply earn you ranks 1 through 3. After that comes the real grind of getting rank 4. First, you need to kill 10 members of the enemy faction in Nashatar to become an assassin. At this point, you need to loot 25 supply chests in Nashatar. These chests being crates that are dropped off by airships that fly over the zone every 45 minutes. Once these chests land, they are fought over by both factions, and whoever is able to open the crates claims it for their faction, requiring at least 19 hours of doing this. However, if you die while trying to get the chest, or get a bounty and then rush down, you need to go and kill 10 more enemy players before the next airdrop, or that airdrop won't count for the achievement and the time waiting will have been wasted. Then, once you have looted your 25th chest, you are able to go and buy the rank 4 essence. Next is the Operation Mechagon part. This one requiring 6 weeks of clearing Mechagon to get ranks 1 through 3. However, you can shorten that to 4 weeks if you do hard mode Mechagon for the last 2 weeks. Then, after you do that, you need to get the achievement Hurts Locker which means doing the entire hard mode Mechagon with zero deaths. This is quite hard because of the many one-shot death mechanics, long overall dungeon, and minor mess-ups leading to deaths. If you're able to get this achievement, you get yourself a legendary rank 4 version of the Perfection Essence. Next one being the Lucid Dream Essence. To get rank 4, it requires getting all three of your bodyguards and Nashatar to level 30, which takes a really long time of dailies and rare farming for experience item drops. Next is Conflict and Strife. This essence is pretty unique in that it grants you an extra PvP talent. That can even be used in PvE. Ranks 1 through 3 are earned simply by doing your weekly 500 conquest point PvP caches for a few weeks and reaching at least 1000 PvP rating in arena or RBGs. Like the Mythic Plus essence, this takes at least 4 weeks if you do some of the highest level content, but can take up to 17 weeks if you do the bare minimum. Then to get rank 4, you need to reach the elite PvP rank, which requires reaching 2400 rating in arenas or RBGs. And for the last one, we have Worldvine's Boon, which comes from Island Expeditions, requiring some mission table missions, doing your weekly Island Expedition cap for a few weeks, which will grant you ranks 1 through 3 pretty quickly. However, like many of the others, rank 4 is a very rare drop, this time from the treasure maps you get weekly for completing your Island Expedition Azerite cap. Get the map and hope it's rank 4, send it off, and in a few days your final rank 4 essence will be there waiting for you. And that is the end of the long list of things you need to do for, in my opinion, the hardest achievement in the game currently, requiring you to do all of the playstyles, other than pet battles sadly, to gather this one massive feat, granting you a feat of strength and the titles Azeroth Champion. Alright, and that's the end of the video. Are there any harder to gain achievements that I may have missed? 
Or do you have ideas for future videos just like this one? I'd love to hear about them down in the comments. And also, special thanks to my editor, Fellplague, for researching and putting this video together. Links to their channel and Twitter will be in the video description if you want to check them out. Hey, Noble. Do you do requests for lore videos? So many I've seen in the forums thinking that the Lich King story ended with that expansion. I think it would be good to do a rundown of what he's been up to in Legion, as well as what he's been up to so far in Battle for Azeroth. Smiley face. Hello everyone. You all remember this moment, right? Father! Is it over? At long last. No king rules forever, my son. I see. Only darkness before me. Without its master's command, the restless scourge will become an even greater threat to this world. Control must be maintained. There must always be a Lich King. Tyrion Fordring first believes that he will be the one to pick up this burden, but no, 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 no. His fate will be to torment at the hands of the demons. Instead, it's Bolvar that steps up and he becomes the jailer of the damned. Those of you playing classic, you might have run into him a few times while visiting the Stormwind throne room. There he is, helping out young Anduin with Lean the Kingdom while his father is missing. A close confidant to the royal family and a hero to the Alliance. In Northrend, he led our campaign against the Lich King until that tragic day at the Rothgates, where Draenor Saurfang was struck down by Frostmourne itself. Bolvar fell to the betrayal to Forsaken. The dead, the living, all present, they died their horrible deaths. Even the Lich King was forced to retreat, upon which the Red Dragon flights, they purged the lands with their flames, destroying their weapons, using their flames to keep the plague from spreading, and for some reason, also bringing Bolvar back to life. Now I couldn't find if it was intentional or an accident, but considering that there were many more corpses on the field, you'd imagine that this was a targeted resurrection. Either way, the flames brought Bolvar back, right into the hands of the Scourge, who worked very hard trying to twist and turn his mind. To have him, like so many others, serve the Lich King. And when our assault upon Icecrown began, a plan was formed to save the Paladin and fix that friction between the Alliance and the Horde. You will not be forgotten, brother. I must be forgotten, Tyrion! If the world is to live free from the tyranny of fear, they must never know what was done here today. As the armies of the Horde and the Alliance withdrew from Northrend, they scarcely saw the Scourge. Since most believed that the Lich King was no more, it was easy to assume that the Undeads were no longer a threat. This, of course, was not true. Bolvar was struggling to maintain control over the endless ranks of the Undeads. The Lich King had directed them to make war upon the living, and it was difficult to quell their aggression. Bolvar fought to maintain his sanity. He'd been a mighty paladin all his adult life, but the moment that he donned the Lich King's helm, the Holy Light had abandoned him. His new necromantic powers, they warred with his senses of justice and righteousness, and it took nearly all of his strength to keep the Undead contained. Some pockets of the Scourge have actually managed to break free of his control. Meanwhile, he still struggles hard and does his best to keep the undead from harming the living, while also trying to keep others from misusing the Scourge's power. 
And as for secrets, well, it turns out that Tyrion, he isn't the best at keeping those. A lot of people know. We're not exactly sure who does at this point, but it's not hard to imagine that the heroes who join us into Ice Crown, that they were later informed by Tyrion. In The Shattering, we also read about this. Varian and Jaina, they're well aware of the fate of Bolvar, whereas Anduin, he only knows of his demise, but not his ultimate fate. Varian hopes that he will never find out, but with the crown passing on to Anduin, he's grown up quite a bit, and he's well aware of who sits on the frozen throne. Then, the short story Edge of Night. It talks about Sylvanas making her own way to the top of Ice Crown, and Ice Crown is an anchor that holds this world to the next, according to Bonsamdi anyways, and where she found this new figure sitting on the throne. Safe to say that it wasn't as big of a secret as Bolvar wanted it to be. And while he was chilling and keeping the skirts under control, time didn't stand still for the world of Azeroth. A massive cataclysm, it rocked the world. A land hidden by mist, it was revealed. The dark portal reopened to an alternate Draenor. And that's where we really started to hear about the Lich King once again. Darian Mograine, he came with us through the portal, in search of information. Though the Lich King has been defeated, we're no closer to unlocking the secrets of the Frozen Throne than we were when jousting pointlessly at the Argent tournaments. Bolvar remains resigned to his fate. Perhaps there is something here though that can aid us. Ner'zhul, he was not always the Lich King. Once, he was a mere orc dabbling in dark powers beyond his comprehension. We're asked to find whatever we can of his early studies, and we may find some answers. The whole Ner'zhul bit, that's referring to the origin of the Lich King. The orc Ner'zhul, he was twisted and turned by Kil'jaeden, and then sent back to Azeroth to weaken it and make it ready for another invasion. Of course, Ner'zhul wasn't too happy with his fate. He actively worked against the Legion plotting and scheming until the invasion failed and he merged with Arthas. The research is brought back to Darien and then nothing else major happens with it, but there was this odd Pandaren death knight that showed up as a garrison follower, but this could have also been a traveling one, unfortunate enough to run into some of the Scourge forces while Arthas was still the Lich King. Nothing major with Bolvar, until Warlords finished and our adventures it flowed into the expansion legion. A fitting name for one of the greatest invasions by the legion that Azeroth has ever seen. The Horde and the Alliance severely get their asses kicked on the broken shore, meaning that the heroes amongst them have to rise up and lead their own order halls. The Death Knights, they got the very edgy title of Death Lords and an unexpected ally to help them in this war. Make no mistake, we are not bound to this new Lich King. However, he may prove a valuable ally against the Legion. Despite the Death Knights of the Evenblade first stepping away from Arvis the Lich King and carving out their own path, with this new friend on the horizon, they decide to once again team up with Lich King, they team up with Bolvar. Considering the Lich King's origin, forced and forged by the Legion, he calls them fools for coming back. They only walk back within reach of our blades. Oh, ensure that not a single demon escapes my wrath. Crush all who stand in your way. Together, we go out and claim powerful artifacts in the form of Maw of the Damned, Apocalypse, and the Blades of the Fallen Prince. Together, we build up our forces and take the battle to the Legion. Now we are the ones giving the gift of undeath to others. We're making new Death Knights to send them out on follower missions, as well as our other major objective, creating four new horsemen. Those are the party Funax and Hamas. You've encountered these horsemen before. Darien's father was actually part of them, before being replaced by Baron Rivendare. They're powerful units amongst the Scourge army. And the Four Horsemen, they're no ordinary Death Knights. They're born of pure undead power, gifted from the Lich King to Kel'Fuzad. The unholy power to raise the dead is now been passed on to us. And with it, we recruit Naskrim, fallen general of the Hordes, Fora Strolbane, fallen king of Stromgarde, 
Sally Whitemane, Fallen High Inquisitor of the Scarlet Crusade. And to lead the entire pack, they attempt to resurrect none other than Tyrion Fordring. You have to wonder how someone like Bolvar Fordragon could do such an act against his former brother. Perhaps the Lich King has more of a hold of him than we know. Or perhaps this was part of a master plan all along. You see, as our knights try to assault Light's Hope Chapel, they quickly find out that it's not just guarded by troops. The light itself does not take kindly to the undead walk in these holy grounds, the very thing that caused Arthas to lose his Knights of the Ebonblade to begin with. The Lich King is well aware of what lies beneath the chapel, and again their assault ends in failure. Or does it? Darian Mograine has sacrificed more for the Ebonblade than any other. His body lays before you, broken, scarred. But death is for the living. It has no power over the damned. Your fourth horseman lays before you, Death Lord. Command him to rise. Would Darien have ever accepted his position of one of the four horsemen, like his father in the past, if this didn't play out exactly the way it did? I see now what I did not see before. My destiny was written long ago. This burden has always been mine to bear. The time has come to take my position as the leader of the four horsemen. All the same, regardless of some kind of master plan, with Darien leading the charge, our four horsemen, they still needed the horses to ride on. Getting this done was a job for our followers that we send out on missions. The ritual, our preparations, it required them to go into the Shadowlands and gather five unholy essences, known as the Aggregates of Anguish. We had Grand Apothecary Putris, Grand Empress Shekzir, Dalen Proudmoor, Archmage Arugal and Sol by the Niami. All of them had a little visit from our troops. After that came collecting saddles and the Mall of the Dead. This was in the possession of Helia within Helheim. It's infused with the souls of countless fallen warriors. We gathered it to forge a barding so impenetrable that no demon shall ever break it. And no demon did. Our efforts with the Order Hall, they were ultimately successful in not only defeating the Legion on our little planet, we even ventured to Argus itself and imprisoned Sargeras. Sadly, there was no real resolution to the story of the Order Halls. They were just abandoned to go fighting one another again. And now it is safe to say that the Lich King, he pretty much had us build him a personal private army. Have forces willing to work together with him again and place the curse of undeath upon others. You might believe Darien and think that they're not bound to this new Lich King. However, the spirit of Arthas, it thinks otherwise. You believe that you are in control, that your will is your own. Yet you do as he commands. You exist by his whim alone. You imagine yourself to be free. But you will always be his instrument. To which we arrive in the current expansion, and the Death Knights, they get a call to remind of their actions and decisions that they made while fighting the Legion. To obtain their new class mounts, the Lich King ordered them into the Ruby Sanctum, where they were given a choice. They could either spare as many of the Red Dragons as they could, and just get what they came for, or they could wipe out as many of them as they can, earning the secret achievement called Unholy Determination. In Drasvar, they get the party with a red dragon named Zelestraza, who remembers clearly what they have done. Monsters in Arthas' own image. When final death comes for you, I hope that you will go slowly, 
tortured by their pain and suffering that you've inflicted on others. I am sure that you told yourself that it was for the greater good. But mark my words, death lords, there will be consequences. All the same, we can still help her out with stopping the death knight, Danir Emberlight, from resurrecting another dragon, stopping them from the very thing that we did during Legion. And afterwards, we still have the choice to show how much of a death lord we are, that we have no regrets, that we're empty inside by trying to attack Celestraza. This doesn't end too well though, but still a nice reminder that our actions, they have consequences for the story. Another, much larger thing for Bolvar, that would be the bombshell for his backstory. Turns out that he actually has a daughter, Thalia Fordragon. She lost her mother when the scourge hit Lordaeron. Her father then sent her to be raised away from the war, and she doesn't know much about him. Just that he was a Stormwind Knight who gave his life fighting the Lich King. Raised by Cyrus, she is now quite the badass and helps the Alliance a lot with reuniting Kaltiris. She even gets to meet King Anduin Rin, who remembers her. Ask no King thing. Rin, there is someone you should meet. Along with your champion, she was instrumental in saving our kingdom and my life. It is an honor to meet you, King Rin. I am Talia. Talia Fordragon. Fordragon? Daughter of Bolvar, fostered under our protection since the Third War. Talia, please rise. The honor is mine. Did you know my father? High Lord Bolvar was a great man, a true hero to the Alliance, and to me. I remember now, he used to write you letters. He had a nickname for you. My shining star. The letters stop coming. I... I have so many questions. Talia, when time permits, you must come to Stormwind as my guest. I have many stories to share about your father. Seems like time has revealed the truth to Anduin, and he too knows what happened to Bolvar. And that's pretty much what Bolvar's been up to so far, but there are some juicy hints on what the future might bring. This, however, is going to go into spoiler territory, so if you don't want any spoilers for patch 8.3 and beyond, then thank you very much for watching so far, and please turn off the video right now. Just fine before I left Korea. Cabin bases weren't an issue, we're okay. Wait, three of our friends said they had to log off, but I'd wish that we'd play with them again. I know it breaks your heart. Next three matches, we were torn apart and fell silver shot. Open up the map full of all blue cards and I. Make me colder, so let's switch it up to Overwatch Where we can have some fun You play Reaper, I'll play Soldier Or let's farm artifact power in some dungeons or a zone But these PGs are a downer, we ain't never getting on a
day I met you Not one kill and that's an issue Are you insane? Stay Play that Arnakill's A6 song Soon you'll deal KB's in war song Okay Hey guys, what's up? Mad Season here, back with another video for you in my Azeroth Arsenal series, where I go over the most powerful or interesting items in the game's history. It's 15 episodes we've covered so far. We've gone over iconic items such as Sulphurus, Thunder Fury, Ashbringer, Atiyash, Shadowmorn. Being of the legendary quality, these items were the best of the best at the time, and were coveted heavily by the player base. Did you know that there are even more powerful items though? Items so strong that they never made it into the game, and only exist in the game files. Either created as a joke, or a reference, or intended to be released, and just never saw the light of day, and only wieldable by Blizzard employees called the Game Masters, or GMs for short. In this video, we'll cover the Game Master only items in World of Warcraft, and the interesting history behind them. There are quite a few, so I have to be selective with what I discuss. I'll try to talk about only the most interesting stuff. From the launch, the idea of an authority figure being present in the game was always interesting. An all-powerful being unrestricted by the rules that everyone else must follow. 
Many times in the race for world first boss kills, GMs and developers will actually be present in the room watching the guild try and claim world first, on the lookout for cheating or buggy mechanics. It's how Insidia got caught when they had used engineer grenades to glitch out the Lich King's platform mechanic in the world first heroic Lich King kill. It's like loading up a game genie and getting access to all of the ultimate items or abilities or walking through walls or getting access to restricted areas. I wonder what it would be like in the world of Warcraft, players thought, and seeing a GM appear in the wild was an exciting thing. Ah oh, shit, oh, make a straight line. Straight line. Go, go. Many issues can be handled solely through text. In the game's early years, however, some issues required a more proactive approach, so GMs would appear before players in-game, showing off flashy effects or wielding special items or armor. In the classic version of the game, you could sometimes seek them out instead though. Some of you may have heard of GM Island, an in-game haven that serves as home for game masters hidden away far beyond fatigue waters. It's normally inaccessible to players. Those clever and curious enough to find their way to the island would receive a swift ban however, as it was reserved for only game masters. The first noticeable item however, would be the iconic blue and black robes. This is the attire of choice for every GM, a three-piece set of a hood, a robe, and some slippers, and over the game's 15-year history, the set has become iconic of the Game Master's look, even being used by Blizzard officially in various art on their website. But you're not interested in that. You want to see the weapons, right? First up, we have the Warglaives of Azanoth. No, not those ones. We of course had the legendary glaives from the Burning Crusade expansion, but did you know that these existed all the way back during vanilla? It was only in the game files, perhaps planned at some point, but never released. They were of the artifact quality, which is above even legendary, and boasted crazy DPS, crazy stats, and crazy everything. Just to give you a comparison, the legendary Thunder Fury had a DPS of just 53. These were a bit special though, because on use, you could combine the two glaives into an item called the Twin Blades of Asnath. Still a one-hander, but now boasting a DPS of 143, shadow damage, agility, stamina, intellect, resistances, and a proc to unleash the Fury of Illidan, getting 1400 attack power versus demons, 20% chance to hit, and 30% haste. Obviously, an item much too powerful to ever be released. Surely, if it was, it would have been toned down quite a bit, which indeed was the case with the Burning Crusade expansion where you looted them from Illidan Stormrage himself in the Black Temple. The originals were quite unique though, as they were the only glaives in the game files. Although technically, they were still of the sword weapon type, the glaive weapon were always a popular myth in early World of Warcraft, and players would try to hunt them down all the time. So when these items came to light, people naturally freaked out and started searching the then dormant dark portal in vain. Alas, the only way to obtain them were through GM commands, and players would have to wait a bit before they could get their hands on the official set. They weren't the only glaives though. There's also the deprecated Warden Blade and the Moon Glaive. And you also have the legendary Glaive of the Defender. More of a tanking item here, with a proc that reduces damage taken from everything by 75%. Although, again, these are technically of the sword type, it seems like there were plenty of plans for glaive weapons to have some sort of role in the game as early as vanilla. Players would have to wait until 2016 in Legion, however, 
as these glaives are only obtainable through GM commands, and there are more for NPCs to hold to make you jealous. And next, we have one for all of you fishers out there. Throughout the World of Warcraft's history, many collectible fishing poles were released. Whether it was the Arcanite fishing pole that you got from the weekly tournament in the Stranglethorn Vale, or the artifact Underlight Angler pole from the Legion expansion, it's always a goal for players to build the ultimate fishing set. The Holy Grail, however, would also be out of reach. Crafty's pole is a legendary fishing rod released in patch 3.1 to serve as a tool for measuring the success chance of fishing with low skill versus high skill. It gave a whopping plus 1000 to the skill, and held a pretty diesel DPS. It also had some flavor text. Just holding this fishing pole makes you shiver with excitement. This is possibly the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Alex's Ring of Audacity is a GM only item, which on equip, your defense is increased by 1000, and you can consider yourself born again hardcore. This is a reference to Alex of Frasiabi, a then quest designer for World of Warcraft, and also ex-GM of what was thought to be the best ever quest guild of all time, the Fires of Heaven. The Shard of the Defiler is another legendary item that never made it into the hands of the players. An incredibly fast digger with some added shadow damage, and a respectable 62 DPS, and a curious unequip effect. The Defiler is a reference to Archimond, a former ruler of Argus, turned demon, and lieutenant of Sargeras, the leader of the demon army, the Burning Legion. This was another item data mined by players in classic World of Warcraft, and it had the unique effect of turning your character model into an echo of Archimonde as long as it was equipped. I made mention of the weapon Shadowmourne earlier, the legendary two-handed axe from the Wrath of the Lich King expansion. The sister blade of Frostmourne, this weapon recorded the collection of the legendary Shadowfrost shards, Reagents only found from bosses in the heroic difficulty setting of the raid, and only obtainable by warriors, paladins, and death knights. Being a weapon reserved only for the Lich King, Frostmourne was a bit too iconic in the lore to be wielded by the average player. But, like many others in this list, if you're a GM, it's free game. 693 DPS, 4.0 speed, strength, intellect, stamina, a socket, and unequip, the wielder of Frostmourne will become the new Lich King. Wait, I thought that was the Helm of Domination. Sounds like Bullcorn to me. And next, we have the Tabard of Stormwind. No, not that one. This one was introduced in the Wrath of the Lich King as a way to grand reputation. There were plans for another one all the way back in Vanilla, however, and although they share the same name, they look a bit different, matching that of the Stormwind City Guard NPCs that you see throughout the city. In the beta of the game, you'd receive this as a reward for rescuing Marshall Windsor from the Blackrock Depths and ousting Lady Prestor as Anixia. For unknown reasons, it was removed in the release of the game, only obtainable through commands like the others on this list. It's not the most major thing, but pretty interesting I thought, as the model is still unique to this day. And next, we have a few items I've covered in previous videos already. I would skip them, but having an episode called GM Items and just leaving them out doesn't sound right, so instead I'll just keep things a bit more brief than usual, and if you want a more detailed breakdown, I'll have some links for you in the description. So next, we have the Ashbringer. We covered this briefly in episode 14. If you watched that one, you'd know about the wild goose chase tied to this weapon. It existed in the game files, but never in-game. It seemed like it was intended that players could cleanse the corrupted sword into this legendary form, 
As in-game dialogue hinted towards it, directing players to find the other lost son of Mulgrain in the Outland. Players searched every nook and cranny of the game for answers, including, uh, fishing, but it wasn't meant to be. This cleansed, legendary version of Ashbringer was again only obtainable through GM commands. Its only purpose, to mercilessly tease the player base into thinking that they could obtain it. It had a steep 88 damage per second, with some added holy damage, and a proc of 700 fire damage on hit, but it was only after the Legion expansion launched that players would receive the official version of Ashbringer through the expansion's artifact system. And next, we also of course have Martin Fury. Those who've been watching the channel for a while are probably familiar with this item. Somehow, I always find myself talking about it, so again, I'll keep it rather brief here. It's the only shirt in the game that has the plate armor type. It has a few stats, but more interesting is the on-use effect. Kill all enemies in a 30-yard radius. Again, I've covered this before, so I won't go too crazy with it. But to sum it up, a player named Karate Chop had an issue with his character. He paged the GM to restore his items, and by mistake, he was sent this item along with all of his other gear. So, he did what any conservative sane player would do. He took it to the next Aldor clear with his guild, he one-shot all the bosses, claimed server first for every single one, and got himself banned and the rest of his raid group suspended for the 30-minute joyride as the world saw for the first time what World of Warcraft was like with the game genie popped in. This, and all future GM items, were immediately changed to instead kill the player to serve as a failsafe if the same mistake was to be repeated. You also have Martin Fury's hotter cousin, Martin Thunder, this time a weapon with ridiculous over-the-top stats, and the same on-use effect as Martin Fury that kills everyone around you. This was nerfed alongside Martin Fury to Martin's Broken Staff, where once again, using it would kill you instead of everyone else. I don't know who Martin is, but he must have been pretty pissed to log into all of his gear getting nerfed due to other people abusing it. And we also have the fluorescent green Mechanostrider. Long story short, one day there's a player who's having trouble with their mount. They had accidentally deleted it and paged a GM to restore it. Pretty run of the mill stuff. It was the green level 41, so the GM restored it and moved on. But uh oh, he made a mistake. He had instead given the player the fluorescent green Mechanostrider, which is unobtainable by players in-game. Blizzard did own up to the blunder, and surprisingly let the player keep the mount, making that person the only one in the entire game to own it. This didn't last long however, as a player tried to sell his account, and as a result was permanently banned from the game, once more making the fluorescent green Mechanostrider extinct. There's a similar story going on with the legendary amulet. It's 2005, the guild nerfed had just defeated Baron Geddon in the Molten Core raid, and what dropped shocked everyone. The first legendary in World of Warcraft, the Talisman of the Binding Shard. 13 Strength, 5 Agility, 8 Stamina, 24 Fire and Nature Resist, and 4 Nature Damage to any attacker. Whoa! <laughs> Okay, it's actually hot garbage, but who cares, it's orange. The lucky recipient ended up being a player named Noctin, and similar to a few items on this list, it wasn't even intended to be in the game. Blizzard had left it in the loot table by accident, and upon learning that someone had looted it, they quickly hotfixed the game so that it no longer dropped. 
although they did let him keep his amulet, making it the only one in existence. And unlike the Meccano Strider, he still has it today. Other than that though, the only way to obtain it is through GM commands. As I mentioned, GMs will oftentimes go out from their island into the world to aid players, and they prefer to do it in style. Peep's Whistle is the only legendary mount in the game other than the Black Battle Tank from the AQ-40 opening event. It's a mount of choice for Game Masters, only obtainable through commands, but players can get the same model from the Ashes of Alar, which drops from Kel'Thas Sunstrider and the Tempest Keep Raid in the Burning Crusade. The flavor text here once more refers to the Blizzard employee, Alex Afrasiabi. And that's about it. Sorry for some repeated stuff there, but again, it just felt wrong to have a GM items episode and leave out the most iconic GM items. Regardless, I hope you enjoyed. Thanks as always for watching. Like the video if you liked it, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace. Farewell for now, mortals. We hope you enjoyed today's video. See you again soon. I'm Hazel, and today we're going to be looking at the totally revamped auction house coming in patch 8.3. We'll go through what the experience is like as you buy and sell, highlight the biggest changes, and I'll give my thoughts at the end. So let's start with buying. Say I want to get some bear meat. I can search, I see what I want here, and now we're in the buy interface. On the right hand side, I can see how many there are and at what price. In this case, we have 8 at 99 silver and another 8 at 1 gold 99. I can buy any amount from 1 to 16 that I want right in this window. If I enter 3, I see my unit price and total. It'll select the cheapest ones first. If I want 12, it'll give me the 8 cheaper ones and then another 4 at the next price up. You don't have to worry about what stack sizes things are, just type in how many you want and if you're good with the price, you can buy that many at once. To sell an item, we've got the sell tab down here at the bottom. You can drag or right click an item from your bags and it pops up. On the right, it's pulled up that item's current listings. You can see how many are up already and what they're priced at. The suggested price matches the current lowest price, so if that's good with you, then you slap post and carry on with your day. The nice thing about seeing current prices and quantities in this window is that you'll know right away if there's like three of a thing posted dirt cheap that's tanking the price. So we post, and now ours is listed at the current lowest price. That means that when somebody goes to buy some, ours sell first. At least until someone else posts more. This new auction house operates as last in, first out. Simply put, the cheapest and most recently posted item sells first. If more than one seller has goods at the same price, and there isn't anything cheaper, the most recently posted ones will sell first. Last in, first out. Now, most people, myself included, will hear that and go, ew, that's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. What it is, though, is basically what we have now. You post something today, someone else puts up another one for one copper less, and there's tens to sell first. All they're doing here with last in, first out at the same price is removing the reason to undercut, which brings us to the next section. What about undercutting? So you can manually set your price to whatever you want. You are not forced to match the lowest price. You could undercut by a little, you could undercut by a lot, you can just match the price, the result is the same. Recent cheapest ones sell first. If they had done it the other way with first in first out, it would have seemed more fair on paper, but then people would just undercut so theirs goes earlier and we're back to status quo. 
Next, let's take a look at some features. Saving favorite searches is now very easy. You search for something, right-click and favorite it, and now you can pull up your list of favorites anytime by pressing the star next to the search bar. Your favorites list is separated by character. It's perfect for items that you search for all the time, like your flask, food, or gem of choice. Filters are now better than ever. You can filter equipment to see only upgrades. That compares against what you're wearing and will show you pieces with higher item level and or more sockets. My personal favorite is the uncollected only filter. That one is for mounts, pets, and toys, but also appearances and even recipes. It'll narrow things down to what you haven't collected yet, so you can impulse shop even more recklessly than ever. And a few more miscellaneous notes before we wrap things up. It is now much harder to accidentally post something as bid only. There's just no more bidding at all on any stackable items, so trade goods are all strictly buyouts. For items that can be bid on, like gear or pets, you have to deliberately uncheck the buyout mode button to access your bid settings. Tough to do by accident. Copper are no longer displayed in prices. They still exist, you just don't see them in this UI. And finally, the dressing room does work. You can preview armor just like before with a control click. You can even preview battle pets. To sum up my overall impressions, I think on the whole, this is massively better for everyday users. It won't replace TSM for me, but it absolutely replaces Auctionator and will be enough for most players out there. It'll make day-to-day -day life easier, get more people to engage with the auction house, and inject some new life into pet and transmog sales. The last in first out concept is going to be the controversial headline of the update because it just sounds wrong. At the end of the day though, it's basically the same thing we have now except without the microscopic undercuts. It might not feel good, but at least it's not a downgrade. I'm really looking forward to the uncollected filter as well as just how smooth and fast everything feels. We'll see how it runs when it hits live servers, but for now it's like speedy butter. It's good stuff. And that's the new auction house. Thanks for watching, pop by a stream sometime to say hi if you like, and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye. That just now was Hazel with her second segment today. Biggest AH changes in patch 8.3, the brand new auction house system. Thank you so very much, Hazel. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so very much for listening. And as always, I would like to thank my contributors for this show. And we have Blizzard with their survival guide for 8.3 Visions of Nazoth. We have Noble87 with his story of Battle for Azeroth recap leading into 8.3. And the story of Bolvar the Lich King, which I thought was valid to bring because we have the Lich King involvement in 8.3 with the allied races death knights that we get. So I thought that was a fair point. Also, after the show is over, after the outro, after Paddy Madsen's outro, you will be able to hear the spoiler segment from that story, from that segment of Bolvar the Lich King because I chose to cut that off. There are quite a few things in that spoiler segment that have been revealed already to the people that play normally and are up to date and have played the content. But still there are some things that are developed 
and it hinted at like he states in the spoiler part of his segment so i thought in case people don't want to be spoiled in any way shape or form and i will give you the opportunity to just not listen to that so after paddy's outro if you want the spoilers if you want the story that novel considered spoilers which i do in some small form as well stay tuned keep listening if you don't want to do that that's good too so i just wanted to make that clear then we have hazel with her two segments 16 cool things coming in patch 8.3 and the segment that you just heard before i started talking again the ah changes segment where she so expertly explains all the new stuff that's going on with the auction house then we had charm with her i hope you play hero mario decks top 10 hardest earned achievements in world of warcraft and i must say that last one that top entry is i don't even know it existed and that's like getting all the legendary essences is insane what you have to do there so just yeah i'm probably not even gonna attempt it so yeah several atomi and Kavo never getting honor and since legion i feel the same way i thought that legion was quite a good way to get honor but again all good things must die eventually apparently so not so much anymore and the last contributor i would like to thank today well the second to last is matt season show with his gm items and his azeroth arsenal episode 16 and the final one obviously being patty madsen for her awesome as always awesome intros and outro thank you very much patty as i said i hope you enjoyed this show i hope you're tune in next time and with that have fun enjoy 8.3 and as charm so beautifully stated in her song i hope you play have a good one bye i hope you have enjoyed your time with the forsaken of cops run radio this episode should you have an idea for a little segment of your own i would love for you to become part of the cast or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at copsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at copsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash copsrunradio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time. And here, as promised, is now the spoiler part of Noble's Lich King segment you heard earlier.
a whole lot of data mining has been done. And one thing that stands out are the Death Knight models for the allied races, and a little encrypted dialogue between Bolvar the Lich King and Darium Mograine. Not only cool to see that the Knights of the Evenblade are still in touch with the Jailer of the Damned, there might be a revamp of the Death Knight starting experience, and more races allowed to become this hero class. Then, the invitation for Talia to come to Stormwind as Anduin's guest. It seems that the Boy King, he's had a bit of a change of heart. She's still very curious to learn more about her father, personally Rysjena, to make this happen. But Anduin says that it isn't a good time for visitors. Apparently, Tyrion Fordring himself made him swear that they would keep secrets of Bolvar's fate. She made that vow as much as he did, and Bolvar was a noble man. To know that he sits frozen upon the cursed throne, devoting his very life to keeping the monsters at bay, it breaks the king's heart, and he can't bear to see it break Talias's too. The decision is yours, Anduin. But if she learns that the truth was kept from her, it will hurt her all the more. One way that this could play out would be a connection to the Whispers of Ilganov. Lying to Talia, withholding the truth about Bolvar. It might actually push her on a path, in the arms of someone that is willing to tell her what's going on, which in turn could lead to some awesome events. But that's just pure speculation, of course. All we know is that Anduin doesn't want to hurt Talia further, and he's pondering what to do. To be honest about it, or leave her in the dark. And finally, you might have been wondering, like, okay, it's very nice to know what Bolvar's been up to, but why should we care? Well, it seems that he will have his part to play in the next expansion. As you probably know, Battle for Azeroth has a big separate storyline going on, which deals a whole lot with the afterlife. Vol'jin appointed Sylvanas as warchief, because, as we thought at first, the Loa, they whispered him a name. Turns out that this wasn't the Loa at all, it was an unknown source that's been playing around behind the scenes. And then another different source that brought him back. Touched by Valor more than he once was, and he's looking for answers as to what is going on. This takes us into conversations with beings like Bonsamdi, the Loa of Death, who early on let slide that he has a boss. A conversation with Eir, who was nearly enslaved by Sylvanas during Legion, and a little trip to Icecrown Citadel, where we talk with the Lich King. <laughs> voice I heard as I be dying, telling me to name Sylvanas war chief. Was it yours? The Banshee Queen's schemes threatened the balance. I had no hand in them. And me spirit, being trapped in this world, is that your doing? Vol'jin, your soul has walked on the other side and returned. You have been altered more than you know. You are neither undead nor damned. You do not belong here. Leave this place at once. I do not like the look of this. I suggest we go quickly. Vols in the Shadowhunter, then goes on to hunt the Shadowlands in an attempt to find more answers. And that's where it's been left for now. So apparently, there's this balance between life and death that the Banshee Queen threatens. None of the rulers of Undeath that we talk to seem particularly interested in what she's doing. Talanji was even offered a deal by Bonsamdi to bring him the Warchief's head. In exchange, the bargain that her father made with the Loa, that would be ended. Now you could say that this might have just been a test to see if she was worthy. 
either way, the offer was made. Then the Tarn hired its armor quest line. It shows that the spirit world is a little bit in uproar, a little bit out of balance. Hell yeah, his seemingly made a return, as told in one of the island expedition quests. All in all, there's just a whole lot of stuff with the afterlife that's going on in Battle for Azeroth. And the star of that story, that seems to be Sylvanas Windrunner, with her goal of conquering death. Unless more details are added, that seems to be her motivation, staying alive. When she decided to kill herself after claiming vengeance upon Arthas, she ended up in this realm of eternal torments. She would still be there, was it not for the nine Valkyr who offered her a deal. They would be free from Bolvar's control, they would come with her, resurrect more forsaken to add to the numbers, and even take her place in hell in case she died. Quite a few have been lost along the way, the latest during the battle at Darkshore, meaning that at this point in time, she has three Valkyr left. That doesn't necessarily translate into free bonus lives though, as when she died to Godfrey, several Valkyr were required to bring her back from hell. Her time seems to be running out. Her safety net is growing smaller and smaller, and she apparently feels confident enough in her ultimate plans to leave the Horde behind. In the end, they'll all serve death. They'll all serve her and her plans. Now of course, this is all pure speculation, but from 8.3 we get these snippets of dialogue. First, there's the one between Sylvanas and Azara, in which they're talking about the bargain. We have a bargain then. I will bring both fleets crashing to the ocean floor, and your champion will deliver the dagger to me. And in turn, you will have the key required to free the old god from his bonds, and leave him vulnerable. You wound me, war chief. After all, I am as dedicated to my master as you are to your subjects. Indeed. Just to be certain that once you have what you need, you dispose of your guests. Let none of the heroes escape. I admire your ruthlessness, Windrunner. It seems our interests are aligned. At present. At present. Treacherous Banshee. Do you think I am blind to the darkness you seek to unleash? Zalatov brought to Azara by Nafanos, with the intent of using it against the old god. Sylvanas did not want us to make it out of Nashatar life, but we did. And then the part about being blind and the darkness that Sylvanas seeks to unleash, that might also be referenced by the new whispers of Ilganov. Before the last shadow falls, the father of sleep shall savor his feast. When their mistress beckons, nine ravens take flight. Each seeks a prize to earn her favor. The blind queen wields a scepter of bone. From the deep, she calls forth doom. The cunning ones kneel before six masters, but serve only one. Now, keyword might, of course. This is all speculation. The father of sleep, that had me thinking of Nazoth at first. But Twitch chats, you quickly pointed out that Muzala actually has the title as one of his descriptions. Another would be the god of death. And those that have read Traveler, you know all about Muzala. And if you're the Banshee Queen, you're thinking about conquering death. You might want to try and conquer such a being as Muzala. You might want to try and conquer this god of death. 
But perhaps she's a blind queen, calling forth only doom. For more recent plans, they haven't exactly worked out. As Saurfang reminded everybody, Sylvanas most of all, she will do anything that it takes to survive, to stay out of hell. Perhaps in her fanatic quest, she'll make the mistake of pushing it too far, bringing forth something that completely unbalances the scale between life and death, opening up the door for future storytelling. Then the Nine Ravens, I'd connect this to the Nine Valkyr, with their mistress being Helia. Imagine a scenario in which all of the Nine of the Valkyr, they end up in hell for Sylvanas. If anyone would have the power to get them out of there, it would be Helia, Queen of Helheim. Hell, they could even build further upon that bargain that was struck during Legion. We know that Sylvanas got this beautiful lantern that she then tried to use on Eir to enslave her, to have the power to create more Valky for herself, but what was it that Helia wanted? The last line, that might refer to the six cosmic forces that we know of in Warcraft. In the end, they'll all serve one, all paths leading to death. In the end, they will all serve death. That's a personal hope of mine, that they're going to open up more future storytelling by replacing the pillars of old, right? The old gods, titans, and the burning legion, that those three pillars are going to be replaced with these cosmic forces. Whole new big threats and stories behind them, new beings with their own motivations and plans. It would open up all realm of possibility for future storytelling. Thankfully, BlizzCon isn't that far off. We'll hopefully know more soon. Now, now I got a little bit off topic when it comes to Bolvar, but all we can really say for certain at this point in time is that we have some data my dialogue, potential allied race, death knight models, and a whole bunch of story that's connected to undeath. There's his daughter Talia trying to find answers as to what happened to her father. Time will tell what Bolvar's role is going to be, and if by that time that he actually makes a return, if there's still going to be something left of Bolvar in there. There seems to be a distinction between the being that is the Lich King and the person that puts on the helmets. Bolvar, he's been spending a whole lot of time keeping the Scourge under control. Will he have the resilience to hang on to that duty? Or will the entity of the Lich King eventually take him over? We have talked to him. We've ventured into Ice Crown a couple of times now and we live to tell the tale. But he's not exactly friendly either. Leave now, or you can stay forever. Ghouls spawning around us, and we're actually the lucky ones. Liana Sunstrider, she once went into Icecrown in search of the legendary Felomalorn, only to be rewarded with a life as an undead. Mage heroes thankfully fared better, but it is safe to say that the good guy Bolvar that he was in life, he's not completely there anymore. And say that he does disappear, that the Lich King completely takes over. Will those forces that we created with the Death Knights in the Order Hall, will they be turned against us? Will Kel'Fuzad make a return to serve his beloved Lich King? Will the story between Talia and Anduin lead to the daughter finding her own answers, her own path to the Citadel? There's a lot to work with here, and I can't wait to see it unfold. For those of you that have asked me about Sylvanas potentially becoming the Lich Queen, my answer to what she's going to do in the future, it remains the same as it was five years ago. She has no intention of ever going back to hell and she will do anything in her powers to make sure to stay alive. If you ever wonder, like what might they do with the story, what Sylvanas might do, like becoming the Lich Queen or finding Frostmourne or whatever I've been suggested over the years, just ask yourself the simple question, will it help her stay alive? If yes, then she will definitely do it. If not, then she will try to find a way to bend the situation to her advantage. She will try to avoid the situation. All in all, Sylvanas wants to live and she will do anything and everything to make sure she stays alive. And now you're up to speed with what Bolvar's been up to and what the future story might bring. By all means, let me know in the comments down below what you would like to happen. The future, it's still unwritten and the paths that they can take are many. For now, thank you very much for watching everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time, see ya!